Hello and welcome. My name is Joe Frost here with my co-host Peter Linus. This is Being Human. So it is our absolute pleasure to welcome Will van der Hart, author, speaker, well-being coach and chaplain to church leaders, corporate coach, uh, lots of hats, Will. It is wonderful to have you with us. Uh, we often ask people to ask, uh, um, we often ask people to give us a couple of stories to help us get to know you, ground you and get a sense of who you are. Tell us, what is it that we need to know about yourself? Oh, I don't know. My fun story is probably um, when I was a student getting married to my wife, Lou, and she'd entered into a tie-breaking brides magazine and actually won a honeymoon of a lifetime to the Maldives, which we totally couldn't afford. Um, but uh, the deal was it was basically some luxury island. It included massages and flights, but it was just breakfast only. So we, we kind of tested the deal a few times. We actually phoned the island to see if we could swap the massages for some meals because we, we genuinely were <laughs> students so we just couldn't afford it so we thought it was smart so what we did was we actually packed one suitcase with our swim suits and you know clothes in the other one we just filled with pot noodles neutral grain bars so we rock up at the <laughs> literally a six-star ultimate luxury resort and every day I'm eating the biggest breakfast you've ever seen I mean literally I was going through every single sort of country of breakfast and I was quite thin at the time and uh, I can see the waiters looking at me going, man, what does this guy have for, for, for dinner? And actually dinner, we were sitting in this amazing hut on stilts, looking over the Indian Ocean whilst I was eating this sort of chow mein pot noodle or this sort of <laughs> chicken and sweet corn pot noodle with my wife. Anyway, so we did a whole week like this. Literally, we had it, we had the whole system down to tea, neutral grain bar for lunch and then pot noodles for dinner. And meals were like a hundred dollar starter per head, you know. End of the week, my wife said, you better go and check the bill because we bought a few things from the bar. Went to check the bill. Turns out there's been a horrible mistake. We are all inclusive. Literally, oh. we could have eaten from any of the five luxury restaurants on the island for the whole week. We've been eating pot noodles in our like heart on stilts for the whole time. And oh, it was like 10 o'clock at night. So we couldn't even go to a restaurant to like try out the, the kind of reality. So like that's my first story hapless disasters but somehow um rinsing out some kind of fun in, you've been using it as a sermon illustration ever since it's I'm a great sure. sermon illustration <laughs> the lord's like been generous to me on that front so yeah that's my first my, my sort of frivolous story i think um my serious story i think if people um sort of knowing where i've come from in terms of uh, i was a sort of quite ambitious young uh Guy came out of a couple of good universities, entered into ministry, and uh, I was very gung ho. I was probably running away from myself uh, as much as anyone else, and uh, got wrapped up in the London bombings response in two thousand and five. Mm. And um, I think that morning I took my wife to Paddington. She was going to a conference, and I walked back past Ezra Road, which was just opposite our little flat at the time. And that's when the the, the Edgware Road bomb went off. And I put on my dog collar, which I didn't wear very often, my clergy shirt, and went out to sort of assist the police. And then I opened up a little hall that became the triage centre for the emergency services in their response. And I kind of cordoned into that and got very, very involved in, in a very uh, benign way in sort of serving tea and 
you know, lunches, supermarkets gave us all their food and everything was closed down, um, toilets, offering prayer and things like that. But I had a, I had a pretty serious nervous breakdown uh, three months after that, which was a, a mixture of complex PTSD, anxiety, but also issues with me. So um, that was the kind of as a really important turning point in my ministry because I had been all about evangelism and apologetics. And suddenly I'm like, actually, am I, you know, am I even going to be able to do ministry? Um, and so uh, started getting really interested in mental health specifically. I had a really good friend from Cambridge who had become a very eminent psychiatrist. And then we we clubbed together to start exploring issues of faith and mental health specifically. So that was the birth of the what we call the Mind and Soul Foundation. And we've been running that since 2006, still going strong. We now have two psychiatrists, a psychologist and two coaches. And we effectively produce sort of resources for churches and church leaders around mental health. And we're just pivoting now because we we did anti-stigma campaigns in churches for a long, long time. But now we just we just care for leaders now. So we just care for leader health. So um, they're my two stories, one pretty frivolous, one pretty serious. But that maybe is an on-ramp to where I am in my ministry. Wow. So yeah. It really helps, I think, me and others to understand because uh, I had little glimpses of that. And obviously, you've written about some of these things and it's helpful to get it. But I suppose that begs for me then that wider question as we look at the kind of um, the mental health has, has become much more prominent in our conversations. Uh, it feels like both within the church and in culture at large. And that anxiety piece, it, like, is it something that we are we becoming more anxious? There's more talk about it, or is it simply that we're talking about it more and more open about these kind of issues and conversations that need to be had? Well, I think it's, it's both and, actually, Peter. I mean, obviously, the, the human body has three systems, productivity, recovery, and security. And the security system, which is our limbic system, is a primary system. And it actually is a, the predominant system in our body. So if you think about it in terms of a meerkat colony, you know, some meerkats are catching grubs and they're being productive. Some meerkats are fast asleep in the sun and they're recovering and there's a couple of meerkats we call sentinels who stand on top of the burrow and they're looking out for eagles or foxes now when they squeak it doesn't matter whether you're asleep or whether you're catching grubs you all disappear down into the safety of the den and the human system works in exactly the same way your limbic system is there to perceive and identify threats and to call you to respond in a predominant way that's why if you're crossing the road and a bus is coming towards you and you've got your earphones in even if you haven't seen the bus, if with your conscious mind, your unconscious will move your body into reverse to take you away from the curb. So anxiety is a pre-conscious action on your body, and it saves your life before you even know about it. It's only retrospectively that you go, oh my goodness, oh, I nearly got run over by a bus. Now, what, what we've got is, if you like, the perfect system, but it's stimulated in an imperfect way. So historically we would be running away from vikings who when we spotted them out the corner of our eye we leg it into the woods and the olympic system save our lives today our threats are are um off are quite ethereal you know we've got the threats of war or disease but fed to us through a third party news feed and so our, our adrenal system is very highly stimulated but actually there's nowhere for us to run so what we experience are symptoms of anxiety which are held in the body without resolution and they're very painful very uncomfortable so they include things like panic attacks and palpitations and 
disrealization and cold hands and feet and headaches and nausea and stomach problems and i'd say our threat awareness inc has increased so much that actually it's become in an increasing problem it doesn't mean that we've caught a disease called anxiety but it does mean that we're stimulated to be anxious far more than we ever have been and that's true you know across society but particularly troublingly with our young people today so many different questions go in so many different directions relationship between mental health and faith then um you talked uh, a little bit about your own story and the relationship that you had that you didn't have the framework really within your faith to to deal and and, and process what happened to you in 2005 um and and then you talked a little bit about the idea that actually a lot of your work was going into churches and dealing with the stigma attached to mental health. And I think there has been a massive shift in our conversations over the last 20 years that is much more accepting and tolerant uh, and understanding towards mental ill health um, and the impact that our culture and our way of living has on us. How have you seen that interaction with your with your faith and with with like the Christian church in general, both positively and negatively? And and how does how does your faith help guide your practice and your well-being? Yeah, thanks, Joe. And um, well, when I first had a nervous breakdown and I was really unwell, I mean, I had I was having nine or ten panic attacks a night. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. Lost tons of weight. I was sort of hyper vigilant and um, I was really falling apart uh, I thought I was the only person I'd ever met who had a mental health problem of course looking back I'd met loads of people with mental health problems but I had no language for it in my church which was a very big and vibrant church at the time I'd never met anyone who'd said they had a mental health problem um, and so it was a revelation to me that other people had mental health problems too when I started talking about it I got warned off it so I had quite a few other vicars basically saying don't start talking about this stuff People will call you the mental priest, which I actually quite like now. Um, it will ruin your ministry. Um, you know, this isn't really something that we deal with in church. And I dearly loved um, uh, friends of mine who were leading me, you know, my colleagues. They tend to split into two camps at the time. One a lot spiritualized the problem. They're trying to cast the devil out of me. And the other, the other side physicalized the problem. They said, I'm tired and I need to get some sleep, which is great if you can't sleep. Um, actually, it was my non-Christian doctor who actually helped me. You know, he was my Samaritan man on my journey. And he was very clear to me. He, he was a very cool, like London wise, doc, junior doctor. He was definitely, he was like, I'm not going near a church like you belong to sort of thing. Like I wouldn't go near a church. I go clubbing on the weekends. But he, he despite being very kind of like, not really my, my bag, he called me out of hours. He kept calling me all the time checking I was all right he showed me I had a psychological disorder he helped me with medication I got therapy I started getting well and when I started getting well I started getting angry because then I was like oh my goodness like this is right unjust we've cut ourselves off at the knees here like I can get treatment and get well um, and then I started opening up the conversation further Initially, there was huge hostility to what the work that Rob and I were doing with Mind and Soul. I mean, my own church, bless them, they were supportive and we hosted our first conference at the church I was part of. I think everyone thought 25 people were going to come to the first conference because we literally, we, we were just like blogging online and over 500 people turned up. And I think it took us an hour and a half to get them in the building, which was pretty embarrassing. But um, it, it, it opened up that conversation 
and I'd, I'd say we were on the outside of the church until about 2012 when um, Rick Warren's son took his own life by suicide. And suddenly lots and lots of leaders started saying things like, oh my goodness, well, if it can happen to Rick Warren, it can happen to anyone. Uh, and then we started getting an entry into churches. Now it's kind of cause celebrate amongst leaders in terms of the care of their churches. Um, but it's not always the first priority of leaders themselves, which is why we've pivoted our work to focus entirely on the well-being of leaders. So that's a long way of saying the culture has definitely shifted. Um, we still carry high levels of stigma to what we call seriously injuring mental illness. So schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, uh, DID, sort of uh, the, the personality disorders, they, they still carry a high level of stigma. And those people are often struggle, struggling for participation in the church body. Whereas they say the neurotic disorders like anxiety, depression, OCD, eating disorders, the like, they tend to be more accepted in the narrative around spirituality. So there's a lot of work still to do, particularly for people with serious and enduring disorders. Um, my faith has been the absolute like ground zero of all of my mental health experience. I didn't realize that a lot of my guilt was disassociative religious guilt, and that was massively exacerbated by my anxiety disorder. So can I, can I just, uh, when you say disassociative religious guilt, can you just yeah. give me another line of what that is, just to make sure well, I'm... You, I mean, in Ireland, you might call it Catholic guilt, um, which is a similar sort of narrative that actually it's a sort of, it's a religious guilt, which is disassociated from your your core activity. So dissociative guilt makes you feel guilty even when you're not guilty. The, the trouble with, with with my sort of form of Protestantism is the assumption is if you if you feel guilty, you probably are guilty. The trouble is that actually mental health disorder, particularly depression, anxiety, prop, and OCD propagate guilt. So you feel guilty all the time, but you just haven't done anything to feel guilty about. Because your brain can't solve that problem, it finds reasons to make you feel guilty. So it's like the feeling comes first and then you replay your greatest worst hits and say, oh, I must feel guilty because in 1985 I did that. And so most people end up on a spiral where they feel guilty, find something to feel guilty about, then go to the cross and ask for forgiveness. But then they don't feel any different and they wonder why they don't feel better. And actually understanding this associative guilt is so important for Christians because you have to recognize that you're forgiven and free, even if you feel guilty. And if you feel guilty, there's not necessarily anything new to confess. Sorry, we're gonna we could go on a really big side tangent on no, that. But that's but... a that's a fascinating question because, <clears throat> in one respect, your faith, or at least a practice of it, is is feeding some of that anxiety mm. and some of those feelings of guilt and shame. Mm. Um, and yet. You don't want to lose that because that is true and beautiful and a source of grace in your life. How do you unpick that? Mm. How do you start um, to 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 not allow one to feed the other? Well, the thing is to befriend both, and that's what we've always tried to do in mind and soul. You know, the fact is, I'm a sinful man, and I absolutely need Jesus Christ to bring me forgiveness because I've really messed up in my life, and so. I received Jesus and I received the fullness of his forgiveness and, and those real material sins are really forgiven and I know they really are. So that's, that's the real medicine for a real disease that I really need. And frankly, without that disease, my, my eternal future is not a good, not a good view. 
um, that assages my anxiety because actually I've been able to, I, Christianity offers you the only remedy to real guilt, which is real forgiveness from a real savior. So like mm. I'm there, that 100% in on that. What's sad is where psychological guilt, disassociative guilt ruins your experience of Christian freedom because it makes you feel like you are unforgiven. And unfortunately, unless the church can understand disassociative guilt and give you a context for it, you're caught in this trap where you only think there's one road and that's back to the cross. But that's the wrong medicine for the wrong disease. What you need to do is actually to learn how to deal with disassociative guilt as well. And that's a psychological remedy. So you actually need a psychological remedy and you need a spiritual remedy. And that's true in physical health. I might have like a physical disease. I need to go and see a physical doctor for a physical medicine. But actually, there's a spiritual element to my physical disease. And I need to also go in prayer to Jesus and seek healing for my full self as a partner to my, my physiological recovery. And so we want to help people to be more discerning in their faith around mental and emotional health issues and spirituality. The irony of guilt is that actually the Methodists knew all about this stuff. So the Wesley brothers knew a lot about disassociative guilt. It used to be called scrupulosity. And um, there's a lovely letter, I think, that Charles Wesley's wife wrote, trying to keep a doctor out of an institution, basically helping to sort of describe his depression and disassociative guilt as a psychological problem, not a spiritual problem. And, um, you know, they, they, they understood that this stuff existed. Unfortunately, when the psychoanalysts appeared on the scene at the turn of the century, the church got very, very sniffy about the idea of false guilt, because the psychoanalysts were almost just kind of describing sin as a problem, an internal framing issue, that actually there's no such thing as sin. It's just how you feel about the events of your life. And the idea that there might be a false guilt gave Christian leaders concern. So they just got rid of scrupulosity as a term and just said, if you feel guilty, you are guilty. Here's, here's the answer. It's Jesus. So it comes out of a kind of culture war of old, if I'm honest. Uh, and we just have to kind of reconnect some some of that ancient Christian wisdom, and then we'll 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 do better. I'm fascinated by that because I think the guilt piece is just like as we look at and reflect on on being human. Um, that I think I'm hearing you around just reflect trying to make sure I reflect this back right. We as Christians put everything down to guilt, and that's caused the problem. Then the secular culture had a had a different perspective, and then this this false guilt coming into play. And I think what my experience has been talking to people is they said. Yes, I could go to any doctor if I break my leg, but I'm concerned about it when I come to a counselor or something to do with my mental health. And then there was a reaction almost said, well, no, hold on, these things are the same. I think you're saying we have to hold both. There is there is a physical side to this. We need that. And your your A&E doctor who was ringing you, who was out clubbing, but also you did need spiritual support because there were issues around guilt and who you were that also had to be processed. And it's trying to hold the two um, together yeah. in that. But I think we have wrestled with as a culture and still do because i think you've done a lot of work destigmatizing and you were talking about that maybe even before we hit record on this uh, as the organization but there is still i think a genuine wrestle from some people trying to work out how they hold what they still see as different ideas together in this moment no totally i mean the framing is the kind of classic cartesian duality where you've got the kind of you know the body on one side and then the mind on the other or physicalism you know where it's all dominated by the body and actually, we believe in something what we call Trinitarian nomism, which is this idea that actually your mind, your body and your spirit are all part of that same one unity and all have to be addressed. 
I mean, you could take this all back to Plato and say, look, Plato diminished the psyche. He elevated the pneuma, the kind of high uh, cognitive power. He wanted to start a pneumatocracy where the whole world was ruled by the most intelligent people. And the sarks, the flesh, was the kind of denigrated bit. We're still dealing with those kind of ideas today, which segregate the body and segregate the psyche and elevate the intellect. And so the church is wrestling this stuff out, often with a poor understanding. And you guys have been working on this, obviously, on being human. What's it mean to be human? Well, a key part, well, the, the definitive of being human is the awareness of the self. Unfortunately, our framing of the self isn't always very accurate. And, um, you know, society at large tends to move into these different categories of physicalism, you know, intellect lead first, or this integrated Trinitarian view that we're mind, body, and spirit. I mean, I think the incarnation means something, but I find so many Christians diminish the incarnation as if being in flesh isn't that important. I'm like, does it not seem important that if God decided to become flesh, that that might mean that flesh means something? So getting this stuff together is is the important thing. And, you know, humans always want to simplify the tension, don't they? I think it was Luther who said, if it's not a paradox, then it's probably not God. I think we've got to hold together the like, you know, let's hold together the complexity of this stuff. I've certainly noticed again a, a slight transition um, from talking about guilt a lot when I was a, a, a young person coming into the church and experiencing Christianity for the first time. But actually, as I've got older, the cultural story seems much more around shame, mm. um, that guilt is a behavioral thing. But actually, as our culture has understood us as a as a self more that actually our behavior is attached to our identity. And therefore, if I if I should be guilty about my behavior, actually, I should be ashamed of myself. And we see the positive of that is that you need to love yourself. You need to look after yourself. We've heard a lot of talk about that. Um, the picture that you see on airplanes about putting your oxygen mask on first, you've actually got to take care of yourself and look after yourself before you can care for others. There's some really good and healthy advice out there. But the flip side of that seems to be quite self-orientating and self-obsessed. And almost the more I put the focus on me, the less healthy I seem to get. Actually, I don't I don't do very well with that. How do we navigate that as Christians or as people trying to live well? Because those voices are getting really loud about self-love, self-care, avoiding shaming, all of that kind of stuff. How do we navigate this space? To me, it all comes down to the belongingness theory. So Baumeister and Leary in 1995 coined the idea of belongingness, the idea that every human has an innate need to for a minimum quality of lasting interpersonal relationship. So basically they said, look, I like attachment theory, but attachment theory, don't you think it always starts at like point B rather than point, point A? I mean, I've always thought like, why on earth does a human want to attach? Like, but actually, it doesn't. attachment theory doesn't make sense unless you do belongingness theory. Like, so if we have a prior I need to belong and have a minimum quality of lasting interpersonal relationship, that means that we're driven to belong. Now, psychologists and sociologists have known that's true because we are community people. And um, we need one another to have that sense of belonging to tribe. And so belongingness drives us, but innately the opposing force of belongingness is unbelonging. 
And unbelonging is another way of describing shame. And so even anthropologically, within the very nature of our DNA is a view that actually we might not belong. So if, if we were, if I was on the hillside, like Peter's over in Ireland, I'm, I'm on one hillside with my tribe, Peter's over in Port Stewart with his tribe. If I'm looking across the water, I assume that Peter's tribe are probably going to be hostile to me. And I assume that as a priori understanding, because if I go for breakfast with Peter's tribe and I've assumed his welcome, I might be breakfast for Peter. Whereas if I assume Peter's rejection up front, then I'll tentatively move in until I'm sure I'm safe. Now, that behavior is kind of universal human behavior. We assume rejection up front. And it's all part of what drives our, our power to belong is to assume rejection. Now, innately within us is a sense of shame. I would challenge your idea that shame follows guilt. I think, I think shame precedes guilt. And actually, shame is an earlier emotion than guilt in the human from 15 months. So well before a child can recognize that it should be guilty, it feels shame. Even Darwin identifies that the human being is different from every other mammal in that when a rhinoceros gives birth to a rhinoceros, it doesn't suddenly see another rhinoceros and then run away and hide in the bushes. But when a human baby sees an unattached, distant adult, one that isn't within its frame of care reference, it will always turn its face away in shyness, which is Darwin's assessment on what is human shame. So you could say the roots of shyness and shame are the very heart of the human condition. I personally believe that that is a, a hat being tipped towards original sin, when actually Adam and Eve in the garden felt distance from God and hid themselves the root of the word shame and the Teutonic, pre-Teutonic is skem, which means covering, means like distance, being shrouded. And I think the human experience is to feel shame and otherness. And we are dealing with an epidemic of shame because the tribes to which we belong are becoming increasingly fractured and our sense of belonging is constantly being challenged. So if we're looking to the other hill in the office, it's the group who hang out by the coffee machine or it's the group who play squash after work or for young people, it's the group on TikTok who look like this or do this. The world is getting dissected on the platform of unbelonging and we've learned to cancel people on the basis of their unbelonging and there's nothing worse. You see, again, sociologically, when ancient man was cancelled, he died. Because actually, if you were removed from your tribe, you lost height, light, heat, uh, friendship, companionship, protection, tools, meat. You know, you lost everything. So today we're getting shamed and we have the same psychological response to our otherness. And that's terrifying and destroying and uh, it, it has seeded society with a terror of shame. And it's exacerbated shame. And now we're seeing behaviors which are sort of self-referencing because the micro community of me, myself, and I is the only place where I'm starting to feel accepted. So people are living virtual lives where their only reference to belonging is themselves because the only person that they know is going to accept them is themselves. And actually they say that, mm. I accept myself. I believe in myself. I love myself. Well, Slightly Cyrus some. Right. If you're terrified of being rejected by everyone else, why on earth wouldn't you set up a little world in which you're the one who determines whether you're welcome or not? And this is, again, why Jesus is so foundational. 
you know, if we're created for prior belonging, we need to be someone who belo- who who makes us belong despite our reasons for exclusion. Jesus is the only person who can say, I love you unconditionally and really mean it. And so belonging to Jesus is probably the healthiest thing you could ever do for your psychological health, because you can go into every room knowing you belong and you're freed from the shame of unbelonging, even if everyone around is telling you that they hate you and that you're disgusting. So I think you've picked up on on loads of things again, but if we want to explore or resonate with, I mean, the shame piece was just an an out of Genesis is something we've, we've picked up um, on the podcast a little bit, but within the book and just, the nakedness and, and the feeling of shame in Genesis and what goes doing and, and the kind of hiding away and running away and then the covering that comes over that from God to replace the covering that was kind of exposed or, or undermined in that moment. Um, and then absolutely the, the signposting towards Jesus as the, the truest and fullest human being and what he both, I think earlier we were talking about the, the flesh. We have this difficult relationship as human beings. Uh, as human beings and particularly Christians and with flesh and what it is to be human in this moment and the holding of those things together, the wholeness of what you're saying. So I'm I'm gonna pivot just because I see so I mean you too you work a lot with leaders and we know a lot of leaders listen to this podcast. So I'd love to kind of just move, I suppose, to some practical application. I mean what you've said well is absolutely fascinating and really helpful in understanding some of the reasons these these issues were coming up and why we're wrestling with them. I know you've written lots on this, so it's kind of slightly unfair to start to ask you to land, you know, we can signpost things where people can go a lot deeper. But if if leaders are listening, like, what are some of the challenges that leaders are facing? And then a heads up in a minute, I'm going to ask you about how we build resilience and maybe help people land this as we come out of it. So the challenges so, um, leaders are facing, sorry. Yeah. yeah, I mean, leaders are facing the challenge to basically be a perfect ego image. So like their idealized ego identity, which is kind of what we carry within us, what we hope other people are going to experience of us, is got so inflated because our our fear of rejection and judgment is so heightened. Um, and everyone says Le- there's a there's a catastrophe of leadership at the moment. That's the narrative locally, socially, nationally. There's a catastrophe of leadership. There's really nothing different going on in leadership today than there was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And I find it fascinating that some of the leaders of the 1940s, 50s and 60s are really deified in today's culture when actually read the biographies around them. And they were up to all sorts of terrible mischief that today they would be exposed off in some big, you know, newspaper investigation and they would be vilified and hounded out of office. The reality is that the human condition is a broken condition. And um, we are always working for transformation and redemption of the human condition. But I think leaders are so terrified today of that judgment, of the humiliation. Remember, the word humiliation comes from hummus, which means the ground. When an actor's on stage, they say, I wish, and they dry up. They're like, I want the ground to swallow me up. Humiliation is the ultimate expression of shame experienced. So people would rather die than be humiliated. And sadly, part of my work is supporting the families of people who've made that decision because they're so terrified of humiliation in the public square. They just they just want to leave the room of life. And many leaders today are living and leading out of terror rather than out of confidence. And part, part, part of this, again, is coming back to say, you know, I mean, as a leader, I come back to that place of saying, Jesus, you know, if you want me to be humiliated, I'm 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 all in, uh, and I feel terrified about the reality 
but I'm also like, unless I accept death, I can't accept life. It's like Jesus said, unless a seed falls to the ground and die, it bear not fruit. And part of us holding on to the tree all the time is holding on to my reputation, holding on to my idealized ego image, holding on to my presentational skills, holding on to my virtue, my narrative. And actually, somebody's just got to go, look, I need to die to all of that because ultimately only then am I free to live. I had a funny experience yesterday. I was cycling in Kensington. Jeremy Vine was cycling next to me. He filmed me the whole way home and then posted the whole thing on on Twitter. Unfortunately, I didn't say anything bad, like I didn't swear or anything. (laughs) But suddenly 750,000 people, including a lot of very angry taxi drivers, started Mm -hmm. hitting the feed and like, I my meager little Twitter is there on Jeremy Vine's, you know, thing. Honestly, I'm not loving the moment. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, like I am hating this sort of humiliation, this embarrassment, this like, you know, what if I'm like suddenly wrapped up into all this controversy? And and I'm thinking, I'm I'm at, I'm at risk of not sleeping here. Mm. Uh, and I'm like, you know what, Lord. Like, I trust that you've orchestrated this random cycling experience and I'll, I trust you to protect me in it. And ultimately, if I'm humiliated as a result of it, I, I'm in your hands. Like, for me to live is, you know, to die is gain and to live is Christ. But ultimately, like, like, the power of belonging as a leader is the foundation stone of any part of your ministry today. And it isn't comfortable to be a Christian today. It's not comfortable to be a Christian leader today by any stretch. Unless you know that to die is gain and to live as Christ, you're always going to be leading out of a place of weakness because you're always going to be working out of how your ego identity is presented. And frankly, people don't really care. In fact, people less than care. You know, they'd quite like you to fall off the perch. So, you know, my encouragement is, you know, to root yourself back into that sense of I belong to Christ. Um, and to recognize your redemption story is also live. I mean, every leader if there's ever been a time when you've needed to focus on your inner world, make sure you've got your ducks in, in a line. Make sure you're not living a secret life. This is the time, right? Clear up your back room. Like, do the work you need to do. Get the therapy you need to have. Straighten out the poor relationships you're living in. If you think you can live this life with a front stage, backstage, I think you're 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 on you're on the wrong lines. This is the time for integrity and leadership on a mecha, absolutely meta scale. But don't live your life in fear. Live your life in faith and confidence. I, I, there's so much truth and wisdom in that. And I, I've just even hearing your analysis of, of people's sense of, of shame and the fear of rejection. And it just the, the idea that a 15-month-old feels shame and I just sit back and remember my kids growing up and they're their little faces when they're fearful or or feeling bad about themselves. And then as a youth worker encountering stuff and and just friends time and time again going through it, it is it is heartbreaking because it is so common. This is this is the human condition. We all feel these moments. We've all encountered these spaces, um, this sense of of rejection and I don't fit in, I am unlovable. And if somebody knew me, if somebody knew the real me, then they would reject me. Um, and to find find a home in Christ who will never reject us, never forsake us and never abandon us. Um, 
But we do see this, and this is either our story or it is people that we love and care about or it is people in our communities. How do we do a better job of being communities of love and belonging, of building resilience within ourselves and uh, standing alongside other people? Are there are there any uh, like top tips, silver bullets, things that we just we've forgotten about that we need to maybe build more into our practice as we move forward? One of the sad things about shame and humiliation is that, again, from a sort of sociological perspective, the tribe want to disassociate from the rejective partner. So the person who's been vilified from the tribe causes not just other tribes to reject them, but also they reject they're rejected by the tribe to which they belong. And um, you know, the stocks was a great example of this uh, in medieval England, where people, the, the vilified individual, would would have you know rotten cabbages and you know eggs and detritus thrown at them. But the suffering of the stocks was actually far far greater than people perceived. Now kids think it's funny that you were in the stocks, but it was a it was a social humiliation. And what happened when you were in the stocks was everyone would want to disassociate from you. Now you might have done something wrong. You probably did do something quite wrong. But the purpose was to create suffering through humiliation. And people wanted to disassociate from that themselves. Sadly, unfortunately, we want to disassociate ourselves from people who are being publicly shamed. And the Christian gospel is one where we recognize our forgiveness, the forgiveness we've ourselves received and then offer that to others. When Jesus dealt with a woman with adultery, he said, he's got the, you know, he's without sin, you cast the first stone. And actually he said, you know, to this woman, you know, I, you know, who condemns you, neither do I condemn you, leave your life of sin, you know. So there's a kind of, there's, there's recompense, there's reconciliation, there's, there's, there's challenge, but there's also redemption. And I think as a church, as a group of people, we have to really re-examine the way in which we want to edit uh, sinful people from the church from the story of the church, um, and recognise that we are a hall of beggars who've received bread, seeking to share our bread with others. And I, I believe in a, I long for a safe church. I long for a church where the things that are in the darkness are brought into the light, but also long for a church which remembers that it's a redemption story. And it's in the work of rebuilding the lives of broken people, not standing in judgment and mocking sinners, as we're instructed not to do. You know, who's called to sit in a seat of judges and to sit in a seat of mockers, not us. Um, and I think society, if I was going to be gen generalised, I think in some ways has become so much harsher and less forgiving and less accepting than it ever was. And sadly, sometimes I see the church following suit and acting in ways which I think are harsh and judgmental and vilifying. And I long for that softness in the heart of the church again. Um, so the work we can do together is remember that we are uh, but dust, and to dust we will return, as it says in the ordinal. Um, but that that in our transient experience that that we we get to share grace, like we live grace, we experience grace, and we share grace. Um and it's a it's a it's a now and a not yet experience. So, how could we see a transformation in the life of the church? It would be to become that soft-hearted, redemptive community that's accepting of people who feel that they don't belong anymore. I think. I think that's 
it's one of the things we've spoken about um, before in the podcast was around where cancel culture goes. We've got a, a culture that has its own definitions of essentially sin. It has its own boundaries anyway that you can transgress. Um, and so you can get cancelled very easily, but there is, it's not clear. And I'm not sure there is a path of reconciliation or redemption or forgiveness back. So it's strong on the cancel piece and, and no pathway back. And I think it's one of the distinctives we have to be talking about, as you've been saying there, is absolutely where is the space for grace and forgiveness in this moment? Where is the space for redemption and, and reconciliation into community? I'm really struck by the fact that we could go uh, into so many parts of that. But I want to finish, last question really to you is around, I, I often, and my confessions, listen to podcasts at least one and a quarter, sometimes one and a half speed. This one I'll be dialing down to about three quarter speed. There was a lot of ground you covered. Um, so where, when people are going, ah, he said something really, like I would love more on that. Where are some places at will that people can find out what you've written or where you're working and maybe pursue some of the threads that you've just um, dangled in front of us and we want to grab onto more? So thanks. So Peter, I, I really want, I mean, I'm really passionate about sustainable leadership. So uh, I'm, I want to, my personal goal is that I love Jesus when I'm 80 in the same way that I love Jesus when I was 20. Um, and I want to help leaders to do that work of like actually not working for love, but working from love. And uh, that's the way in which I want to sort of help leaders to be sustained. Um, I've written obviously a number of books, uh, Worry, Guilt, Perfectionism, um, the pregnancy book. Uh, I've written a book called The Power of Belonging, which actually explores a lot of what we described here around shame. The guilt book deals a lot with the disassociative guilt. Uh, last year, I wrote a book with Bear Grylls, which is slightly different, and it might be for more of a non-Christian audience, but it might be something that Christians would give away. It actually offers the gospel in several of the readings, but it's it's a book that we wrote for really to help with resilience and so I've used Bear's incredible adventure stories and the adventure stories of some of the most sort of remarkable adventurers of the last a couple hundred years, and then taught the psychological and sociological tools out of those. There's a reading a day. It doesn't involve a kind of specific prayer or anything. There's some life coaching questions there, but it's it's a 365-day journey through emotional resilience. And I've just we're just bringing out now a youth version called Mind Fuel for Young Explorers, which is for the sort of 10s to 15s. And there are 80 readings grouped into different journeys. So there's an expedition into self-care, an expedition into um, courage, an expedition into motivation. And so the expeditions take the young people through these kind of important tools for life, really. Um, there's the mindselffoundation.org, which again, has tons of resources for leaders. And uh, I, I run a various little podcasts and blogs and for business it's the w1 collective that i run to we go into workplaces to help with sustainable leadership and again we're all christians but we work in the secular space so quite a lot of different things really um, you just just spent your life twiddling your thumbs that's I what i heard I don't, I, don't, I don't do very much really and i don't i actually do i like it's when i say that i sound i sound i feel a bit embarrassed like honestly i really relax well Tomorrow I'm going fishing for the whole day. I'll be fly fishing. I'll be Instagramming myself fly fishing. So every other Christian leader knows that's what I'm doing in work time. Um, I cycle <laughs> around London. I have coffees. Get and I by Vine. Get to by Jeremy Vine. I just, I, I think it's really important. You know, when you list off some of the stuff you do, everyone thinks, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm like wasting my life. And I just, I'm like, absolutely not. You're not. And actually recreation, recreation is a key part of our spiritual disciplines. So I'm like recreating every day, surfing, fishing, hanging out with my family. So don't feel like, oh my goodness, I need to do more. In fact, I'm busy telling people, please don't do any more. 
Excellent. Well, they can find out all about what you have been up to, what you're up to in your recreation spaces. We'll put all the details in the show notes. But Will, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your stories and for your insights today. It's been brilliant to have you on the Being Human podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Total pleasure, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you.